Amen. Thanks, Tyson. Good morning, church. It's good to see you. Thanks for joining us on the August long weekend, which I always call annual youth pastor preaching Sunday. So I get the privilege of, uh, of sharing God's word. Uh, my name is John, a youth pastor here at the church. And uh, this morning, it's my privilege to open and explore God's word uh, together. Uh, if you're joining us for the first time, maybe you've been gone all summer. Let me just kind of bring you up to speed where we've been. Uh, we're currently in a series called Pray Like This, uh, where we've been giving ourselves the summer to explore and to dig deep into uh, the Lord's Prayer. As Jesus taught uh, the disciples how to pray, he did so wanting them to understand the, the framework in how we are to approach God. And the reason why we're talking about prayer this summer is that for a lot of us, our experience has been that prayer uh, seems lifeless. We, we figured that we must be doing something wrong. Uh, and what we want to do is we want to help you come face to face with God with confidence that he is listening to your prayers and that he loves you. And so over the course of the last few weeks, we've spent time talking about how Jesus invites us and enables us to call uh, God our Father and how that reveals his goodness and his grace. We've talked about God's kingdom and how the kingdom of God is made visible through the church. We've looked at how we have the privilege to participate and contribute to God's will done here on earth. And we've looked at asking God for our daily bread and how we are to depend on him for absolutely everything. And this morning, we are going to continue the conversation as we look at what many theologians would say is uh, one of the boldest requests found in the Lord's Prayer. Matthew 6, verse 12. Father, forgive us of our debts. Now, I want to give you a little illustration to help you understand why this is such a bold request and put, uh, put it into perspective for you of how incredible God's forgiveness is. I want you to imagine for a moment that you are absolutely drowning in the four-letter word debt. It's uncomfortable. It has led uh, to stress and sleepless nights. Your bank account is crimson red. Your credit card has racked up. Your line of credit is maxed. And as a result, you are missing payments left, right, and center. Any money that you're able to pay is not even covering the interest that you owe. Your phone is ringing off the hook as creditors are trying to call you day and night. They are wolves and they will keep phoning you until you answer. And all that you can think about is losing everything. One night in desperation as you're sitting at the table with your, the stack of bills around you, you come up with this audacious plan. You're going to bring all of your bills to the bank and you're going to plead for the mercy of the banker. That's what you have left. You're going to ask them to forgive you of all of your debt, every penny of it. And the question I have for you is this, why wouldn't that plan work? Maybe you've asked that question. If you have, put your hand up and they've actually like forgiven it. Please let us know because we want to switch to your bank. Okay. But here's the thing. Here's the thing that I want to fill you in about banks. Banks don't care about you. And, and I hope that you don't hear me wrong. Okay. Because banks love that you are a customer and will give you the best customer service they possibly can because they want you to continue banking with them. What banks like most uh, about you as a customer is not you as an individual. It's how much money you're going to deposit into your account. 
the bank will make it relatively easy for you to bank with them by giving you loans and lines of credits and charging you uh, like a really great interest rate from keeping you from switching to other banks. Right? But the other thing that the bank cares about is their money. You see, how much you owe to the bank is very important in the eyes of a banker because it's money that you owe. That is their investment. And they will charge you interest for every dime that you borrow. And when you can't make payments, major red flags are going to go off because they're not making money. You see, banks don't care about how you got into debt. They don't care how it's going to impact your family. They care about their money. And the reason why I can say this is because the bank is nothing more than a financial institution that is licensed to receive deposits and to give out loans as they help you find financial freedom. Okay? The bottom line is that banks don't like unpayable debt. Regardless of what you do and what you say, if you go in there and say, forgive me of my debt, they're going to laugh at you because they are the bank. And this morning, our text of Father, forgive us of our debt reminds us something pretty extraordinary. And it is this, is that we all have a debt that needs to be paid off and and we are unable to do so. But unlike the bank, the God who created us and the God who longs for us to be in relationship with him has been patient with us with the desire that we would turn to him, not as a banker, but as our heavenly father. And that we would seek forgiveness for our sins. That's what 2 Peter 3 verse 9 says. At the heart of our passage is Jesus pointing us to the mercy of God as a forgiving God and reminding us the humility that we need to approach God as our Father in prayer as we seek to ask that our debt be washed away. And so with that, why don't we just pray quickly this morning? Lord, we come before you this morning fully aware of the debt that we owe, fully aware of our sin. We thank you, God, for your word that encourages us and reminds us that we can turn to you because you are merciful. And I pray that as we dig into this topic this morning, that for some of us, that this would sting. Would it convict us? Would it remind would it remind us of our sinfulness? But more importantly, would our hearts be warm to the gospel and the good news of Jesus as we see the mercy of God? We pray this in your name. Amen. Well, the first thing I want us to explore together is the debt of your sin. Just like financial debt, if you do not address the source of your problem or know the reasons why you're sinking in it, chances are you're never going to get out of it. And that's the same with our sin. If you don't understand the root of our problem and how we get there and how it's impacted our lives, how can we expect to have a reason to actually get out of it? You see, our problem started back in the book of Genesis. And if you haven't been to church much or you don't know a lot about this Christian thing, uh, our problem started back in the book of Genesis. The, the, the Bible, which is where we turn to, is the grand narrative of the story of God and his relationship with mankind. The story starts off in Genesis 1 when God, who was at the very beginning, began to speak into the nothingness and creating all that we can see. He spoke and the earth was formed. 
He spoke, and by his authority, everything came to be from sunrise to sunset, from mountains to trees to the smallest of cells. All of it was created by God and declared good because God, the creator himself, is good. But his creation wasn't complete yet. It was lacking something. It was missing someone who could enjoy the glory and the beauty of God that was displayed through all of his creation. And so God came up with this really great plan. He said, let us create man in our image. And that's what he did. He created man and woman in his image. And he formed man from the dust of the ground and breathed life into his lungs. And from that moment on, God was our God and we were his people. His creation went from being declared good to very good. Not because we're all that. It was because it was declared very good because we could, as his creation, enjoy him and know him. And so God gives mankind responsibility. He says, I want you to have ownership. I want you to take care of my creation. I want you to have dominion over all of my creation. He instructs us to multiply, and as we do, we are instructed to reflect his character so that all would know who he is as Lord of the universe. God literally gives man everything that they could possibly want or ever need, except for one thing that they had to remember. They needed to remember who God was as the creator and who we are as the creation. So God says you can have everything. You can have everything except don't eat from the tree of knowledge of good and evil, for if you eat of it, you will surely die. Actually, sounds like a pretty good gig, doesn't it? Enjoy God, enjoy his creation, have life, but there's that one thing that we don't have that we really want to have. And so what is man really good at? Going after the things that we don't need, thinking that we need them. And so what does man do? He disobeys God and ultimately puts himself in a debt that he can't pay for. He takes the fruit, he eats it, and it says that his eyes opened and, and he felt ashamed. There was this guilt that came along with their sin. You see, Adam and Eve's disobedience wasn't about a piece of fruit. It was about being like God. When God created us, his intention was that we would live underneath his righteous rule, that we would obey him and worship him and be in awe of him, and that we would live in unbroken relationship with him. But when Adam and Eve rejected God's rule, and when they ate the fruit from the tree, they didn't just break a rule like my kids breaking rules all the time. It was much deeper and much sadder than that. And it was this. That in their sin, they would reject God's authority over them and declare their independence from God. And that's what sin is. Sin is a deliberate violation of God's uh, commandments. Any failure to conform to the moral law of God in act, in attitude, in nature. And the problem with sin is that this thing has impacted every part of human existence. Everything is corrupted by it. And just like Adam and Eve, when we choose to do our own thing and, and reject God's rule when we want, however we want, with whoever we want, we're not just breaking a tiny rule. We are actually rejecting the authority of God as creator and ruler of our lives. And, and that's why Jesus says that we have a debt. Notice that he doesn't say your debt. 
He says our debt. And the reason why is because all of us have sinned. All of our names are on title here. Romans 3.23, all of us have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Eugene Peterson would say it this way in, in the message. There is no difference between us and them in this. Since we've compiled this long and sorry record as sinners, both us and them, and prove that we are utterly incapable of living the glorious life that, that God wills for us. You see, all of us in this room, regardless of age or race or background or what neighborhood we grew up in or how good we've lived our lives, all of us are sinners in debt. All of us. And just as financial debt has consequences on our lives, so does our sin debt. God made it very clear to Adam and Eve what the consequences were. And as a result of the rejection of God, the relationship between God and man drastically changes. Isaiah 59 verse 2 would say our iniquities actually separated us from God. The wages of our sin became death. And the issue with our sin, just like any other financial debt, is that we don't fully understand or know the full measure and extent of how severe our debt is because we've been living in it. Unless we've been called out on it, we really don't care, do we? In Matthew 18, Jesus gives us the picture of a, uh, the kingdom of heaven, and he tells the story of a king who wanted to settle the, the, the debts and settle the accounts of those who were in debt. And so the king calls forth a servant who has this outstanding debt of 10,000 talents. This man owes more money than you and I could ever comprehend. It is roughly 150,000 years of working wages. This is a debt that is impossible to pay. But like any debt that is owed, it needs to be collected. And so the king has no other option than to address the man and make him aware of his account and discuss why it hasn't been paid, right? And ultimately, the debt has to be collected. And so he makes, the king makes the executive order to sell his servant, his wife, and his kids into slavery to recover a fraction of the cost of the debt. You see, the consequences for this man was a life sentence. It would lead him to his death. One commentary author that I read said this, We see what a sad condition sin has brought men into. It has stripped them of their estates and possessions. It has reduced them to want and beggary. It exposes them to a prison, to the just resentments of their creditor, to the wrath of God and to the curses of the law. The debt needs to be paid. But for some of us, we are blissfully ignorant of how severe our debt is. And the reason why is that for a lot of us, we're used to just living in this debt. We're used to living in a state of unrepentant sin. We know that the red number is getting darker. Okay, we know that at the end of the month, we're going to be deeper and deeper into our debts. But we get used to it, and we work around it, and we don't feel the need to do anything about it. Greg Gilbert, who is the author of a book called What is the Gospel, writes this. He says, sin doesn't shock us much. We know they are there. We see them in ourselves and others every day, and we've gotten pretty used to them. 
And what is shocking to us is when God shows us the sins that run to the very depths of our hearts, the deep running deposits of filth and corruption that we could never, or that we never knew existed in us and that we ourselves could never erase or remove completely. You see, deep within each one of our hearts is hidden sin. Stuff that we haven't dealt with. And you know what? I think for most of us, we're, we're partially okay with this. We justify it. We minimize it. Uh, things like our pride and our envy and our slander and our addiction issues, our reliance on alcohol and drugs, our partying, laziness, lust, pornography, uh, cheating on our spouses. We've stolen from our workplaces. We've gossiped about others and on and on and on this list goes. We, we driving to church today. We got angry at our kids and went into a fit of anger and rage. Whatever it is, we say, you know what? We're okay with it. But I know exactly what happens when a list like this is read, is, is read. You feel a sense of shame because the weight of your sin becomes apparent. For some of us, it took a moment to swallow because the lump in our throat was so big because you know that the person beside you is going to hear you swallow. And you don't want them to know that the preacher is actually talking about your sin. You see, no one wants to be called out on their debt, but far too often our knee-jerk response is to justify it. We minimize how damaging it is. We say things like, you know, I, I wouldn't say, that's pretty harsh to say I'm addicted, right? Or my sin is pretty minor compared to my neighbor. You should hear him. He swears like a sailor. He's, he's really bad, and I'm, I'm pretty good. And the reason why I can say this, and I can stand up here so confidently and say this, is because that's the same way I feel in my sin. You see, the whole, the whole Bible teaches us that we are all rebels against God. For all of us have fallen short of the glory of God. No one of us is righteous. No, not one. I, I love especially what Isaiah 64 verse 6 says. It says, we all shrivel up like a leaf. And like the wind, our sin sweeps us away. And here's the reality of your sin. It's leading to your death. It's leading to your death. It is going to consume you. It is going to eat you up alive. But what can we do in it? Do we have a choice? I think either we can sit at the table blissfully with the, the, the debt around us and, and, and think that we can make it another month. And we continue to allow it to consume us. Or we plead for the mercy of the creditor. You see, just like that illustration I said earlier, a bank's not going to forgive you. But what we learn in our text this morning is that there is something incredible that will happen. And it is this, the Father will forgive you of your sins. And so what Jesus is saying to, to the disciples and what he's saying to us this morning is this. Plead for the mercy of God. That's what you need to do. Pray to your Father in heaven and ask him to forgive you of your sin. And so this leads me to my second point. And it is the mercy of the Father. You see, just as our verse this morning shares about the condition of man's heart, it also shares and tells us about the heart of God and how we have the ability to approach him in the midst of our sinfulness as our Heavenly Father because of his mercy. 
The mercy of God is possibly one of the greatest attributes of God, and it can be best described as compassion or forgiveness shown towards someone who doesn't deserve it. Now, if you're a parent here, you know exactly what that means. Because our kids, on a daily basis, do a really good job of sinning. Okay, Uh, they lie, they cheat, they steal, they beat up their siblings, uh, they disrespect and disobey the rules of their house. But as parents, that doesn't stop us from loving them, does it? No, it doesn't, because we love our kids unconditionally because they're our kids and we're their parents. It doesn't matter how many times I've been lied to by my kids. I have all the time in the world for them and want them to come to me with their requests and their petitions. And in response, I want to do everything that I can to show my kids that I love them. A a few days ago, we had an incident at our house. Uh, I call these ones the code red incidences because they're like a nuclear bomb that goes off. It starts small and then it's just massive. But uh, what happened was Heather found an ice cream wrapper hidden behind the toilet. And so her first response was to ask me if I ate ice cream in the bathroom and then hid the wrapper. It wasn't me, all right? Just to clarify, I have not been known to do such things, all right? But if you're wondering, right, it it was one of our kids. And so I gathered the children of the corn, and I I asked them (laughs) who did it, to which I got the same answer from every one of my kids. It wasn't me. And I'm like, oh, man, guys, you guys are really good at lying. I know it's one of you. Just, like, just come make it easy for me. Tell me who it was. So I figured out it wasn't two of our kids. It was going to be one or, one or two of the other ones. And so um, I dismissed two of our kids, and I, I turned to the other two, and I said, hey, you guys are going to go into your room, and you're going to discuss what happened, and you're going to come and tell me the truth. And so they walk to their room, and I can, I'm sitting outside, and I can hear, hear one of our kids in particular talking. You just have to tell Dad. So my youngest son comes walking out, and he has tears rolling down his face, and he says, Dad, it was me. I did it. And I looked at him, and I said, actually, no, you didn't. And I said, hey, oldest son, not named. You don't have a name here. (laughs) Come here. Come talk to me. And for 20 minutes, and I said, hey, you need to tell me the truth here. And for 20 minutes, this kid uh, argues with me about all the reasons why it wasn't him. My favorite was, I don't do things like that, and you don't trust me. So I interrupted him, and I said, excuse me, mister, all right? I am your dad, and you have to tell me the truth here. I want the truth. I don't want excuses. But what did he do? He continued to give excuses. And so I I kept kind of like looking at his bed and he would like kind of freeze. And so I walked over there and then he was just like, he just froze up. And I peeled back the, uh, the, 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 the blanket to find 22 jumbo freezy wrappers and six empty pop cans hidden amongst his bed that he had eaten in like a day and a half. All right. So first conversation, diabetes. All right. We got to talk. We got to talk. Moderation, all right? And all he did was continue to make excuse after excuse after excuse after excuse. He didn't apologize. And so because I love my kid, I start dishing out consequences left, right, and center. I'm like, no Xbox, no Lego, pick up dog poop. That's what you got to do. It was terrible. It was like my, my kid hated it. And so for the next few days, I became the banker. And my kid became the kid that had the account that was overdrawn. And it was tense in our house for a few days because that's what the debt of sin does. 
It wrecks relationships. But I was extremely proud of him because about four or five days later, he came up to me with tears in his eyes and he said, Dad, I'm really sorry for lying about the freezies. I'm really sorry I blamed my brother. I'm sorry I took stuff from the freezer when I knew I shouldn't have. I'm sorry that I lied and made excuses. And in that moment, I could only do one thing, and that was give my kid a hug and say, you know, I, I had to teach you some lessons and some consequences here because you weren't going to learn them. This is what the consequences for lying meant for you, and it wasn't good. But you just did something amazing. You apologized to me. And because I love you, because you're my kid, I I'm going to forgive you. Right? I'm not going to hold this against you for the rest of your life. I'm not going to bring it up unless it's in a sermon illustration because it's been dealt with. <laughs> so I then said, why, why, don't you, why don't you invite a friend to come over and have a sleepover? And he stopped and he asked me, he goes, why? Why would you let me have a friend come over to sleep over? And I said to him, because I have to teach you how the father is always merciful to his sons. If we as, as fathers in our evilness can give good gifts to our kids, what kind of gift can God give us? And that's the story that we read from the very beginning of Genesis. Throughout all of scripture, we see the mercy of God. With Adam and Eve, there may have been consequences where they got kicked out of the garden, where they had to work hard, where labor would be painful. But what did God do in Genesis 3, verse 21? God made for Adam and for his wife garments of skin and clothed them. He showed them mercy. For the servant in Matthew 18, who owed him millions of dollars, what did he do? He had compassion on the man, and instead of selling him, his wife and his kids into slavery, he forgave them of this massive debt. And the reason why is because of his mercy. God will always respond to you in your prayer. He will always respond to you in your brokenness. He will always respond to you in your debt and will always be merciful. You just need to turn to him. The great truth spoken by Jesus is that God will always respond. Ephesians 2, verse 4 to 6, but God being rich in mercy, which means he is abundant in it, which means he's got lots to give away because of his mercy, being rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. And that's who God the Father is. He does not retain his anger forever because he delights in steadfast love. The Lord is good to all. He has compassion on all that he has made. He saved us not because of righteous things we've done, but because of his mercy. So how does God show his mercy in our sin? 1 John 4 verse 9 says, In this the love of God was made manifest among us. That God would send his only son into the world so that we might live through him. You see, God knew our sinfulness. He knew our hearts. He knows our wickedness. He knows our tendencies to sin. But God does not leave us in our death. He provides a way out of it. Because of his mercy, he will do everything he can to grab a hold of the hearts of the ones that he loves. And that's why he sends Jesus. Jesus, the Son of God, came to pay the price of your sin. He came to redeem you from the curse of the law. He came to be the ransom. 
He was nailed to the cross and took the place that we rightfully deserve so that our sins could be forgiven. He conquered and beats death. He is the propitiation of our sins. He is the payment. And not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole wide world. God from day one has always loved his creation, has always intended that we would turn to him and enjoy him as our father. And, and when there is something in the way, something that separated us, God cannot idly sit by. He acts merciful, mercifully. And this is the gospel. This is the incredible good news that we preach week after week after week after week. It is the mission in which we live that Christ Jesus would come into the world to save sinners of whom I am the worst. The gospel of Jesus changes everything. It frees us from being debtors. It frees us from the weight of sin. It, sa it saves us from the consequences that we so rightfully deserve. And it restores the greatest relationship that we could ever experience. But here's the thing. God doesn't force us into relationship. God has given us free will. And we can act however we want, or we can turn to him. So how do we respond? What do we do in light of our sin? In light of, and in light of God's mercy, and in light of the cross, Jesus is teaching us that we are to turn to the Father and to pray for forgiveness of our debt. A prayer of forgiveness comes from the deep need and desperation for relief from our sins. And at its root, it means to cancel and to wipe the slate clean and to erase the numbers in the business ledger. That's literally what it means. Repentance isn't about just saying a prayer. But rather, it is a heartfelt sorrow for our sin, a renouncing of it, a sincere commitment to forsake it, and to walk in obedience with Jesus. You see, at the root of our prayer has to be humility. We can't do this on our own. I can't, I can't take care of my own debt. I'm drowning in it. I need to reach out. Second Chronicles 7 verse 14 says, If my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven and I will forgive them of their sins and will heal their land. That's what, what God says. See, Jesus is teaching his disciples how to pray for forgiveness. And, and this is what he's teaching. He's teaching us the framework of how we, we seek for forgiveness. The first thing that we have to do is we have to humble ourselves. To humble yourself means that you admit that you are wrong. You accept the, the consequences of your sin. It means remembering who God is as a king and who you are as a sinner and that only God is the one who saves us. That's what humility is. I, I can't do anything about my sin. But God, the creator of heaven and earth, can. To pray is to recognize that there is no other method by which our debt can be wiped out. It is also the desire that we have to restore fellowship with our Father and to repair what is broken because of our sin. To seek God's face means we're seeking his presence in all aspects of our lives. It means setting our heart and our mind on the things of God and listening to his word and longing to live that out and to have that reflected in our lives. To turn from our wicked ways is to repent 
which is to feel or express sincere regret or remorse about our wrongdoings and sin. When Jesus started his ministry, he had one thing to say, and it was this, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And the reason why the master forgave the servant's debt is that he pleaded with the king, crushed by the realization of the severity of his impending punishments, out of grief and remorse, falls to the feet of the king, to the ground. And he asked for mercy, give me more time. I'll pay back everything. And that's what Jesus is teaching us when he says, pray like this, Father, forgive us of our sins. He wants us to come to the realization of the severity of our impending punishment and out of grief and remorse, fall to the feet of Jesus, our King, and to ask for his mercy. Our continual prayer in life needs to be this, save me, O God, for the waters have come to my neck. I sink in the miry depths where there is no foothold. You have seen my folly. Oh God, my guilt is not hidden from you. Rescue me from the mire and do not let me sink. Lastly, Jesus is teaching us something. And it is this, that we are indebted to Christ. What the disciples don't know yet is that Jesus is going to the cross to pay the ransom for their soul and for our soul so that we could know God and experience forgiveness and have life. The message of the gospel is that God, who is rich in mercy at the right time when we were still sinners, sends us Jesus and allows us to have life in him as the debt of our sin is forgiven. Jesus died for your sins. But what does that mean? The question that I've been wrestling with this week is, how much has this actually changed my life? How often is my prayer of forgiveness lacking any sort of effort or try in, in giving up my sin? You know, as I look at my heart and my life, I'm fully aware of my sinfulness. But, but does knowing Jesus, knowing that he paid it all, does that mean anything for me? And the question I have for you is, does it mean anything for you? Does this change us at all? A few years ago, one of my favorite movies was released, uh, and it's called Saving Private Ryan, which is loosely based on a true story. And the movie is about a soldier named James Ryan, who is uh, one of four brothers who fought in World War II. When it was found out that his three brothers had been killed in the line of duty, General George Marshall gives an order that James Ryan be found in the front lines and be removed from harm's way. The movie starts off with James Ryan as an elderly man walking through the cemetery in Normandy with his wife, his children, and his grandchildren. And as he walks through the cemetery, he comes to this particular grave marker and becomes utterly overwhelmed to the point of falling to his knees and, and in tears. The rest of the movie tells the story of how Tom Hanks' character, Captain John H. Miller, puts himself and his squadron of five or six others into harm's way to rescue and to save Private Ryan. The second to last scene of the movie, uh, Captain John Miller is protecting uh, James Ryan, and he gets shot. And as he is taking his very last breath, he, he tells James Ryan to come close, and he says this. He says, earn this. Earn it. 
And the scene transitions back to James Ryan as an elderly man asking his wife, tell me I have led a good life. Tell me that I'm a good man. You see, when someone lays down their life for you, it requires a response in how you live the rest of your life. The Bible tells us that the gift of salvation is a free gift. It's not something that can be earned, but it requires something of you. It requires the rest of your life. God does not say earn this. God says be transformed by this. Romans 6 verse 18 tells us that we have been set free from sin. But it doesn't end there. To be set free from your debt means you are now enslaved to righteousness. You are indebted to Jesus. And I think this morning, some of us here have to repent. We have to seek God's forgiveness. Because instead of the gospel radically transforming and changing our lives, we instead have viewed God's grace as nothing more than cheap grace. Essentially, that our forgiveness and our redemption doesn't have to impact our lives. It doesn't have to transform us. Right? That we can continue to live like hell because God's forgiven us and he will forgive us again and again and again. But that's not how you respond to mercy. But rather, I think, a misconception of God's mercy. God's grace and his mercy requires true repentance, which is the turning away from our sin. It requires us to fight against it, not to just go with it. It requires us to, to give it all up, to run away from it, to allow every part of who we are as God's creation to be impacted by it. Dietrich Bonhoeffer wrote this about cheap grace in his book, The Cost of Discipleship. He writes this, Cheap grace is the preaching of forgiveness without requiring repentance. Baptism without church discipline. Communion without confession. You see, what Dietrich Bonhoeffer is saying is it costs you everything. And if you're serious about it, then church, we need to repent because we've asked for forgiveness, but our lives look exactly like the rest of the world's. Throughout the Old Testament, we can read story after story after story of, of, uh, of the nation of Israel and how they've taken God's mercy the wrong way. In the book of Micah, we're given a glimpse of this. God has rescued and redeemed the nation of Israel from its slavery. He has given them laws to follow. He's instructed them on how to live their lives in light of mercy and freedom and forgiveness. But we're told in Micah 6 that that actually didn't change God's people. It didn't change their hearts. And so God has to say to them, my people, what have I done for you? How have I burdened you? Answer me. Essentially, what God is doing is holding his people to account for how they've lived their lives, how they've viewed his mercy. And God continues and says, I, I brought you out of Egypt. I redeemed you from the land of slavery. God's making it so clear that he's demonstrated his saving love for his people. But how did they view it? Their response was, well, we give you offerings. But God is saying this, I don't care about lip service. What God longs for, for us as the church, us as, as those who have been called by him, is to have a heart response to God demonstrated in how we live our lives. Micah 6 verse 8 says, what does the Lord require of you but to act justly, to love mercy, to walk humbly with your God? That's how we live our lives in light of salvation. To keep coming back to him 
recognizing our fight with sin, being dependent on him and him alone. And so how do we live our lives in light of God's mercy, in light of the cross? Because you were bought with a price, church. Your holiness matters because God saved you. Your worship matters because God gave you grace. He stepped in at the worst of our lives and took the place. 2 Timothy 1 verse 9 says, He has saved us and called us to a holy life. But I realize that I, as I come in here, I haven't been living that. You haven't been living that. God says, be transformed radically. And as I finish, I, I want to invite us into a time of response. The worship team is going to come up and, and lead us. I also want to invite those individuals who are either serving communion or, or on our prayer team this morning to get ready to serve as well. This morning, we have the great opportunity to respond to the work of the Spirit by saying, Father, forgive us of our debts. For a lot of us this morning, the weight of our sin is hanging heavy on our hearts and our minds this morning. We are fully aware of our sinfulness and our struggles that we're facing, and we want to invite you to respond by praying the prayer that Jesus taught us. Father, forgive us of our sins. First, if you're here this morning and you're, you're struggling with that weight, with that debt, we want to invite you to pray with a member of our prayer team. And, and, and they're going to point you to Jesus, and they're going to sit there at a joy to talk with you and, and, and to hear you and to help you know Jesus. As a church, we're going to take communion together, which is the opportunity that we participate to remember the price that was paid for our, our, our freedom. That Jesus' body would be broken and his, that his blood would be poured out for us. That, that through that act of grace and mercy, that we would be cleansed from all unrighteousness. And this, this morning, let's be serious about this. If, if we have unrepentant sin in our lives, don't take communion. Spend time praying, Father, forgive me of my sin. Let us repent this morning. Let us spend time praying for forgiveness. And if there's an issue between you and someone else, to take care of it. And after you've done that, come up and enjoy the meal that was prepared for you. A meal that reminds us the price that was paid for our debt. That Jesus' body would be broken and his blood would be poured out. And the other way that we respond is through the singing of songs as we humbly fall on our knees and express our complete and utter dependence on Jesus as we worship. So invite the usher or the, uh, the communion service to come forward and let's pray. Jesus, this morning, I, I am fully aware of my sin. You have convicted my heart. God, we thank you thank you so much for your mercy for your grace for your forgiveness god thank you for sending us jesus that while we were at the worst that you would step in and give us the greatest gift that we could ever imagine that we could ever experience god thank you for your mercy and i pray that that, that the gospel doesn't just sit idly in our hearts 
but it transforms and changes us and, and forces us and compels us to go into this world and to sing the same song that Jesus sung. Repent of your sin, that God loves you and willing to lay down the life of his son Jesus to cover the cost of our debt and our sin. Lord, would that amaze us today? We pray this in your great and awesome name. Amen.